There are two readings this morning. The first one is Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. And you'll find this right at the very beginning of the Old Testament. Um, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And the second reading is from Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. And you'll find this on page 1135 of the Pew Bibles. So Romans 8, beginning at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And at verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, please, please reveal your goodness in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what does it mean to say that God is good? Is this um, just of mild academic interest, some sort of apologetic? Is it an attempt to 
resolve life's problems by some sort of um, means, suffering? Uh, is it to counter us? Is it some pseudo-scientific, pseudo-mathematical attempt to reduce the real problems of life into some commuted mathematical formula like 42, the answer to the world, universe, and everything in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? There is suffering a test or is it a consequence? Is it perhaps a rock, a mantra, a statement, a meditation, a prayer in testing times of illness or loss or untimely death or failure? Disappointment with God? Perhaps losing something of our love for God, doubt? Unanswered prayer, by which of course we mean prayer that isn't answered. Yes, the check's in the post, first class stamp, one to five days delivery like a radio part ordered from the internet? Or is it something to do with relationship depending on God's character? If you think for a moment about the Greek, Roman, or Norse gods, they're really overgrown teenagers, aren't they? Uh, uh, lust, uh, family breakdown, argument, immorality, murdering, bickering. They need to be placated all the time. They're spiteful. They're needy. If God is not good, then does his sovereignty turn into tyranny? Does his justice become favoritism? Does his love become fickle? And does prayer become a matter of self-promotion or, or God's mood? Busy, come back tomorrow. Or is God's goodness also something to do with faith and trust? Would you trust a god like the Norse god Loki, you know, who's sort of a sort of overgrown puck messing about all the time? Well, no, you wouldn't. So God's goodness is important if we're going to trust him. Tim said this on Monday, but I'll risk it again. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it looks much more learned, doesn't it, to produce a book and read from it, but there it goes. Um, <laughs> the children are in Narnia, they're in trouble, they're about to be, they have been betrayed and they're about to be captured and killed and used by the demonic uh, witch. And the beaver is trying to explain that they need to meet Aslan and who he is. And um, Susan, she's the, the, the sensible one, uh, when he's told that uh, Aslan is a lion, uh, she says, oh dear, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. And is that a good thing? Is it a good thing that God is good? Well, here we are. Here's the other authority on such things, 1066 and all that, is an authority on what is or isn't a good thing, if you're old enough to remember it. The Roman conquest was a good thing, since the Romans, sorry, since the Britons were only natives at that time. So we don't necessarily know a good thing when we see it. We might notice it more clearly afterwards, because our understanding is not God's understanding. Our understanding and our sight is not his. So what does the Bible say about it? Well, in Genesis we have God creating man and woman out of the same stuff in the likeness of God, in God's image, with a capacity for life, spiritual life, reason, 
morality, knowing right and wrong. I don't know about yours, but amongst my children, about the third sentence they ever uttered was, it's not fair. The provision of earth and air and sun and water makes things grow. Seeds with DNA in them. A seed, that's my visual aid. A, a fern seed, you plant a fern seed, you don't get an elephant. You plant a bean and you get a bean, or the pigeons do. But it, it dies in order to produce its future, its crop. And God saw that all that he had made was good. No, very good. Now, there is a theological argument that says that creation and nature reflects the nature of the creator. So you can prove God, as it were, from looking at creation. And the psalm says something like that when it talks about the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. But if the, the argument is this, the creator must be good, otherwise... Because you can't create goodness if you're not good, and you can't create life if you're not alive, Latin there's, there's nemo dat quod non habet. Nobody gives what they haven't already got. So that's an argument for God taking that way round, and his goodness, God saw that it was very good. But it isn't so apparent now. Was choice a good thing? Well, you can't really share love with a robot, can you? But mankind chose to experience evil, and, and we still do, believed a lie and acted on it, and suffering and death arrived. The earth was spoiled, pain and a struggle for mastery arose. So God limited human life. My spirit will not strive forever with man, his life will be limited to 120 years. And he guarded the way to the tree of life. Can you think of a world where Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, Genghis Khan, Tamburlaine, the scourge of God, lived for maybe a thousand years? God limited the damage that man can do. And even in Genesis 3, there's reference to the Messiah coming to crush evil. The Bible also says that God is good in Psalm 135. Praise the Lord for he's good. His name endures forever. His name which shows his character doesn't change. God doesn't change. He has compassion on his servants. That speaks of relationship. Some sort of response is required, not just academic interest. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. 26 verses, in every single one, the refrain, his love endures forever, a response. And Psalm 136 also asserts that God doesn't just passively look at his creation and let us get on with it, a sort of um, work it out for yourselves, sort of Nanny McPhee goodness. Instead, he intervenes in Psalm 12. It says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he rescued the people from Pharaoh, from the sea, 
from the desert, from their enemies, food for free, and a relationship with God. They messed it up, of course, with the spies. That looks forward, doesn't it, to Isaiah, where he says that the Lord will lay bare his mighty arm in the sight of all nations, and all the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And that looks forward to the crucifixion, a rescue by Christ free for eternity, and a relationship with God. Now that's good, isn't it? And God knows how to give good gifts. He won't give us a stone for bread or a snake for a fish. And he will give his Holy Spirit to those who ask. And that's good. He knows our circumstances, our hopes, our fears. He's lived a human life in Christ. Come to die to bring us to God. But it doesn't feel good on a day when he allows three people to be thrown alive into a burning furnace or ISIS to blow up yet another church in Egypt with Christians inside or yet another massacre that somebody else performs, even crusaders. So his nature does not depend on our feeling or our understanding. If God is good and his name endures, then love endures and he's good all the time. Not just good on Sundays when I remember. It's not a postmodern sort of in and out of existence, in and out of goodness sort of a God, is he? He says to Moses, when he's asked for his name, I am. I'm the real one. I'm the one. I'm the only one. I am in the present. I don't change. So what? Well, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just sit and sort of mutter about it, but, but taste and see that the Lord is good. That psalm is written... We thought about it in the home group last week. It's written by David after he's had a rather, a rather difficult time. And some of us have difficult times. And this is really all about suffering, I think. That some of us are in a difficult, painful situation where there's loss. And do we see God in that situation? So there's David, the anointed king. He's killed Goliath. He's killed thousands of, the, of the, uh, the people's enemies. King Saul is trying to kill him. He's tried personally. He's tried with an army repeatedly to try and kill him. His son, Jonathan, has made a, a covenant with David, but is unable to protect him. He's powerless. His wife, the daughter of, of Saul, uh, has warned David to flee for his life and has put a, a stuffed dummy in his bed so that he can escape, but is powerless to protect him against her father. And he goes to the priests, and they have just a little food and an old sword that he used to kill Goliath, and they're all killed afterwards by one, by Saul's shepherd. So David, Samuel's nowhere to be seen. He has no help. So he flees to the enemy, goes into exile with the king of the Philistines. And he prays. Wait a minute, Ms. Koonsberg at the back says, doesn't say that in Samuel, 1 Samuel 21. No, but he does in Psalm 34 because he says, this man prayed and God delivered him. This poor man called and God heard him. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. 
So he goes and he prays, and inexplicably, I don't know whether he's got Goliath's sword over his shoulder, but inexplicably, while he's pretending to be mad, the king sends him away. I've got enough madmen. He's recognized, but inexplicably he's sent away. And back he goes, and he goes to the cave of Abdullam, and there, amazingly, friends come, his parents come, other people come. He finds a safe place to keep his mother and father safe, and he has an army. And God's prophet Gad comes and tells him what to do next. And his response to that awful place and God's rescue is this psalm in which he says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord redeems his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. doesn't promise to give us bad things, but this does say that they will lack no good thing. And that, that's amazing in places of loneliness and failure and hopelessness, the sort of places that, that David was in. He can praise God, he can witness he can show his example, the way God has dealt with him and rescued him for other people. And there's even a prophecy there of the crucifixion. Hard to believe, but if you look at John 19, it's there. That's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Does that say anything? Well, Mark 10. The rich young man comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, tell me what must I do uh, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's Miss Koonsberg at the back saying, wait a minute, this is inconvenient, isn't it? Um, Jesus says, uh, call no one good except God only. Why are you calling me good? Well, it does look inconvenient <laughs> to start with. But actually, with the help of my commentary, I think it's this. Jesus says, why do you call me good? What's the implication of that? The argument is that until the man can see God in Jesus, he can't really call Jesus good. So the first point is Jesus says that God is good. But the second point is that we see God's goodness ultimately in Jesus. It's C.S. Lewis again, isn't it? Jesus can't be just a good teacher, by which we mean a good moral teacher, not an effective, skillful teacher, but a good moral teacher teaching good morality. He has to be either that or God. He can't, can't be both because he says he's God. And if he isn't, then it's not good and it's not moral to say that you are. So Lewis says that unless he's good, then he's mad or bad. So, did Jesus' character reflect madness? No. Badness? No. Does Jesus' character reflect a God who is good? Yes. And does his nature change? No. And what did Jesus do for the man? He looked at him and loved him and told him what he needed to do. So we get to the main point, Luke 22. 
thank you that this part of the new sheet is correct. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is in the moment of his greatest trial and temptation. As David was, he's about to be betrayed. This is in the upper room. He's going to be abandoned, and he's going to go for trial and death. He'd had a struggle in the wilderness, in temptation, those questions after the Holy Spirit comes upon it as him at his baptism. The questions are really, what sort of a Messiah are you going to be? Is it going to be food, prosperity for everybody on the earth, healing for everybody forever on the earth? Is it going to be world peace? But with the devil undefeated? Or is he going to be the Isaiah 53 suffering servant, Messiah? And in these tests and temptations that we have, and some of them that you have faced are far harder than anything that I have faced, there's a question, isn't there? What's God's purpose? So here we are. First of all, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked. Satan has asked. He is not all-powerful. The Temptation is not going to be beyond what we can endure. God is in charge, not the enemy. He's asked to sift you like wheat. See what you're really made of. And we know, and Jesus knows, don't we, that uh, before breakfast, Simon Peter will have run away from Jesus. Well, fallen asleep when he was asked to pray and be with Jesus, cut off somebody's ear at a critical moment when Jesus is doing his best to submit to his Father's will so that he has to interrupt all that and heal the ear, and then run off, and then again run away from a, a barmaid, a slave girl, uh, when he's asked three times whether he was with Jesus or whether he's a Galilean or whether he knew Jesus. So three denials before breakfast. That's, uh, and it's just when Jesus is going through his own test that he has to think and look and reassure Peter that Peter's lesser test is not going to be the end when he messes it up. So what's the verse for that? It's 1 Corinthians 10. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear and will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to stand up under it. So that's the first thing. God is in charge. It won't be too long or too unbearable or too hard. And the second thing is extraordinary. I've prayed for you. This doesn't work if God isn't Trinity, but it's extraordinary. Have you thought about that for a moment? Jesus praying for Simon Peter. The Holy Spirit praying 
for us, interceding for us, twice in the Romans passage, Jesus in the Roman passage, at the right hand of the Father, with permanent, immediate access. Not going through anybody else, permanent, immediate access is praying for us. Isn't that the most extraordinary thing? That's good, isn't it? And what does he pray? That your faith may not fail. Jesus doesn't pray that, that Peter will be brave enough to cope with that thing and, and succeed in that, in that temptation, but that his faith won't fail. But in a way, he knows that, he knows that Peter's going to mess up, doesn't he? So he says, and when you have turned back, not if, when you've turned back, that's the repent word, the conversion word, turn back. Strengthen your brothers. So what happens? Well, Peter messes up, he runs away, and uh, Jesus goes and completes his test perfectly. And Peter goes back, even after the resurrection, he goes back to Galilee and he goes fishing again, goes back to his old life perhaps. And Jesus comes again on the shore of the lake at the end of John's Gospel and calls him, repeats the miracle of the fish, no doubt who he is, and Peter responds, turns back. And then there's that conversation. In this passage, he calls him Simon three times. In that, three times, he asks, do you love me? And three times, he's given a task. So not only is this test and temptation not going to be the end of the story, but there is a task and there's a relationship. Strengthen your brothers. So those of us who suffer strong and hard temptations, do they, does that, does the observation of that strengthen others? So did Peter manage that? Well, yes, he did. Acts 3, 4, and 5, he and James and John, strengthening each other, no doubt, they go and they stand before the same crowd, they stand before the Sanhedrin, and they say the same things. They say, God has made this man whom you cru crucified, both Lord and Christ. They say, there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved, except Jesus' name. And they have this courage, and they strengthen their brothers. Is that an answer to a prayer of the Lord, to the Lord? on our behalf. It's weird, isn't it? This, I, this sort of Trinity thing, well. But I don't, uh, I feel like Peter in the days of failure, not in the days of success. Too hard for me in the night. I feel alone, it's awful, it's hard to pray, I can't hear you. I can't feel your presence, God. What have I done, why me? It's not fair. It's all very well for you to say these things. not happening to you. But Jesus has experienced all these things, the hardest possible test and temptation, all the same that we have, and yet without giving in. But what possible purpose could it have? And it's not my fault, is it? it must be my parents. Well, Jesus in John 9 goes to see the man born blind, and he's healed, but before he's healed, the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? Nurture, nature, genetic upbringing. Who sinned? 
It's a really difficult theological question designed to catch him out. But he says, well, no, not designed to catch him out, but likely to catch him out. He says, neither. This happened that the power of God should be made known in his life. This happened that the power of God might be made known in his life. Have you considered God's servant Job? Nearly there. In chapter 1, Satan asks permission to test Job's faith. He says to God, you put a hedge around him, a hedge of protection around him. And Satan is given limited permission. And then in Job 19, Job says, I call for help, there's no justice. You've hedged me in, you've fenced me in. He's alone and he's comfortless and he's had some very bad advice. But actually, in the spiritual realm, as it were, he's been protected by God's hedge. Although, understandably, he can't see it. And he goes on to say the most astonishing thing in faith. He says this. We know this, don't we? Because we hear this. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin, my body, has been destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's the spiritual perspective of the awful suffering that Job is enduring. And that has strengthened many, many people on wet, rainy afternoons at funerals and elsewhere, where we know. And Peter has his story, has that encouraged us? Yes, even his, his letters, one and two, Peter, now are an encouragement to thousands, now. So this, this does work, and one day God will wipe away every tear, and there'll be no more pain, no more tears, no more doubt, or failure, or separation. No more looking on a shadow. So God's purposes, even in this awful suffering that some of us have, are good because he's good. God's plan of salvation, like his plan of creation, is very good because God is very good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and seek him in prayer. Now this is the challenge bit. What will the purpose of your test and mine be when it comes along if it hasn't come yet? What's the way of escape that we may bear it? What will be the task God has for you in it? What will be the purpose? And how will that strengthen your brothers? Come and pray about that afterwards. Now this is testimony. When I see the courage and faith of people suffering and dying, when I see the way some people pray for each other, when I see the courage and faith of one or two people here who have faced great temptations, I'm humbled, but I'm also strengthened. And I see, we see, the power of God made known in those 
tests. And we praise him and thank him. God is sovereign. God is good. If he's good at any time, he's good at all times. He doesn't change. Let's pray. You, O Lord our God, are good all the time. May our faith not fail. May our brother's faith not fail. May we know you in our tests. May we know your purposes for us in your time. May we strengthen our brothers. May your power be made known in our lives. Amen. Amen.